Good morning, Village Church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know we're going through the Acts series. And uh, but Pastor Matt came down sick this weekend, so we're taking a a little detour away from Acts. We'll be back in there uh, next week. This morning we're going to look at this familiar passage from John 15, and we're going old school with no slides this morning. So. Feel free to pull out your Bibles, and there are Bibles in the back if you need one, or your Bible app. Uh, this is part of a larger discourse between Jesus and his disciples. It's called the, the Farewell Discourse. Uh, it's because it's his last extended teaching before Jesus will go to the cross. And it takes place mostly in the upper room, right before Jesus goes out to the, to the garden where he will be betrayed and delivered over to be crucified. In this passage where Jesus teaches on the vine and the branches and fruit, it's not really a, a parable per se. It's more of an extended metaphor. And what we're going to see from this metaphor is that the fruit God is looking for from his people is the fruit of obedience. That fruit only comes as a result of being attached to the vine who is Jesus. So look at me at verses 1 to 2 of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The picture Jesus uses is of a grapevine growing wine grapes in a vineyard, and there's a man tending to the vine. Now, this scene resonates with me personally because I grew up in Northern California and spent a good deal of time in the, the wine regions up there, including Napa, but also places like Anderson Valley and the, the wine country up above Sacramento and the Sierra foothills. I love the, the whole aesthetic of, of winemaking and meeting the winemaker and um, all of that. The, the natural beauty, though, of the hills and seeing the grape vines uh, on, the, on, the, on the hillsides I just love it all. Uh, Jen and I even spent part of our, our honeymoon in, in the wine country. But what may not be obvious to us when we read this passage is that when Jesus talks about the vineyard, he's purposefully going back to a, a, a metaphor that's used elsewhere in Scripture. He's trying to call to mind for his disciples the use of that same, uh, that same metaphor. The vineyard is an important symbol in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, we see a lament over the vineyard of God. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it with stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, 
and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God describes the people of Israel and Judah as the vineyard. Verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. God put a lot of care and he put a lot of effort into this vineyard. He prepared a place for it on a very fertile hill by digging out and removing all the stones. That speaks of his loving provision for the people of Israel. He took them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he set them up in a place that was not their own, a land of milk and honey. He built a wall around the vineyard and a watchtower in the middle of it. That speaks of God's protection of his people in the midst of a hostile group of nations that were always coming after them. He hewed out a wine vat in the vineyard. That speaks of the way God intended to use his people. They were to be a blessing to the nations. In light of all that, God had an expectation for his vineyard. It was to yield good grapes. It was to yield fruit. But God says when he looked for the vineyard to, to bear grapes, it instead yielded wild grapes or sour grapes. The fruit God is looking for is the fruit of godliness. But the fruit he got was the fruit of sinfulness. He expected justice to come out of Israel, but instead he got bloodshed. He expected righteousness to come out of his vineyard, but instead he got an outcry. And there's a play on words here that we miss in the English. The Hebrew word for bloodshed sounds like the word for justice. And the word for outcry sounds like righteousness. So it's reinforcing this idea that God expected grapes. He got grapes, but they were bad. They're bad grapes. The point of this is that sin of his people is a great offense to God. And as a result, God is going to execute judgment on the house of Israel. He's going to judge this vineyard that he planted. He's going to remove its hedge, break down its wall of protection, and Israel's enemies will trample and devour it. What once was a fertile, beautiful, green vineyard, God is going to turn into a thorny, dry wasteland. And this metaphor of the vineyard is carried through into the New Testament as well. Matthew 21, Jesus tells the parable of the talents using the same analogy. And he uses language purposely calling from Isaiah 5. In verse 33, he says, There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you 
and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So the leaders knew Jesus was talking about them because they were familiar with the scriptures. The master of the house who plants a vineyard and puts a fence around it and digs a wine press in it and builds a tower in it and expects fruit, well, who could that be? Right, it's God. And the vineyard is his people, or as Jesus puts it here, it's the kingdom of God. And the leaders of the people of Israel are pictured in this parable as the tenants. They're responsible for tending and caring for the, this vineyard, for delivering the fruit that God expects. But they only care for the position that they have that's in charge of, of the vineyard. And they reject any claim that God has for any good fruit to come from the people. And the servants who go to the tenants in this parable are the prophets that God sends to warn the wicked leaders of Israel and Judah. But like the wicked tenants, the leaders rejected their message and killed them. And then finally, Jesus foreshadows his own rejection by the Jewish leaders, saying, saying they're going to do to him what the wicked kings did to the prophets. In the end, the vineyard, the kingdom of God, will be given to new tenants, to a people producing its fruits. So now if we come back to John 15, we see that Jesus does something surprising with this familiar metaphor. As we saw with the parable of talents, the Jewish people know this. They know this metaphor. They know how the vineyard is used in scripture. But in verse one, Jesus flips the script on them. He says, I... I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. In all the other uses of the vineyard analogy, the vineyard is the people of God, people of Israel. But Jesus says, I am the vine. God the Father is still the one who plants and tends and cares for the vine, but Jesus is the vine. To see what's going on here, we have to look one more time back to the book of Isaiah. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, just after the song of lament about his vineyard, God prophesies against Israel again that it will be like a great tree that's cut down, leaving only a stump. He says, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when felled, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. He mixes up the analogy a little bit here, picturing Israel as a tree instead of a vine. And this tree is going to get chopped down, and it's just going to be a, a stump left in the land as a dead stump. But in Isaiah 11, God promises that one day a green shoot would spring up from this stump and this branch is gonna bear fruit. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Notice that this shoot, this branch is a person. He won't be like Israel's unfaithful leaders, though. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. This promise 
is what Jesus is referring to when he says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. God had planted this beautiful vineyard, given it everything they needed, protected it, set it up in the most beautiful spot, and he expected fruit. But the vineyard failed. Vineyard couldn't produce good fruit because of its sin. Over and over again, the people love pleasure. They love themselves. They turned away from God. So God gave them over to their sin. As he had promised, he brought destruction against his vineyard. The axe was laid to the root. But God made a new promise. He makes a new covenant with his people. Instead of imposing the law from the outside, it's going to fail again because of the hardness of their heart. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a heart that makes you want to obey. He's going to forgive them all their sins. But it took a different kind of vineyard to accomplish that. God himself is going to have to provide the vine to give life to his people and cause them to bear real fruit, true fruit as a result. That's what Jesus is saying. I am that true vine. I am the connection between God and man. I will bring life where there was spiritual death. I will bring forth fruit. The branches of my people are going to overflow with fruit. Why? Because they're connected to me and my power. Seeing Jesus as the vine here, though, is really only the first part of the picture that he paints. The main point of his teaching focuses on the fruit. Namely, the fruit that God is looking for is the fruit of obedience to Jesus. And the fruit God is looking for comes only as a result of the branches being connected to the vine. Maybe the most obvious thing from this whole passage is that God thinks fruit is important, right? He's described in verse 2 as the vine dresser. He's the one who prunes. He's the one that makes sure that the vines give off maximum fruit. He cuts off what's unfruitful. He trims and prunes the fruitful branches even. Now I can testify personally to the importance of good fruit for wine. Uh, you cannot get good wine without good fruit. My roommate, Tony, and I proved this when I was in law school. Uh, we tried our hand at making wine and we had all the right equipment. We bought all the stuff. We did all the right things, but we didn't have access to fresh, good wine grapes. So we had to use canned wine grape concentrate that we bought online. And it turned out about as well as you might expect for canned wine juice. Uh, we had a lot of bottles of barely passable wine. Uh, but the problem isn't what we did. The problem is the fact that we didn't have good fruit in the, in the first place. In this passage, Jesus emphasizes the importance of fruit in both a positive and a negative way. Positively, Jesus says his disciples were chosen and appointed for the purpose of bearing fruit. Look at verse 8. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The purpose of the branches is not to look pretty. It's not to be green. It's not to look at. The purpose of the branches is to bear fruit. Negatively, Jesus emphasizes that the branches that don't bear fruit are cut off. In verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now that last bit, I think, is especially striking because it means God does not hold back in trimming and cutting even the most fruitful branches so that they will produce more fruit. It's not a comfortable process we're talking about here. Those branches would not choose to be trimmed if they had the choice. And it doesn't always look logical to the untrained eye. At the end of this trimming process, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of good-looking stems and fruit sitting on the ground that have been cut off. But God is the wise vine dresser, and he knows the best way to make those branches bear even more fruit. So given that fruit is so important to God, then what kind of fruit is he looking for exactly? You see it in verses 9 to 10. Jesus says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abiding in Jesus, abiding in his love, has to do with keeping his commandments. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In essence, Jesus says, you want to abide in me? You want to fulfill your purpose for being? You want to be my friends? Then obey my commandments. The other major point of this extended metaphor, though, is how is that supposed to happen? How do we bear the fruit of obedience? We know God wants it. We know we're designed for it. The fruit that God is looking for only comes as a result of the branches being connected to the vine. When Jesus says his people are branches, he's really emphasizing the connection to the vine, right? He's saying, you are a branch because you are united to me. Beginning in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In other words, Jesus says, if you want to bear fruit, you need to be connected to the source of life. You need to be connected to me. It's a bit of a strange command, though, if you think about it. Abide in me. The idea of abiding is fairly passive, right? It implies you're already somewhere, and you're just going to stay there. Abiding isn't hard. Abide in me basically means remain in me. When you remain somewhere you already are, that's essentially the, you know, the definition of a passive activity. Abide on the couch. Is that a hard command? Right? No. Um, I can do that, I think. One, may, one way, though, you may have heard this idea expressed is the expression, you need to let go and let God. Basically, stop trying. Stop doing stuff. Let God do stuff through you. I've read a whole book that holds up this sort of passive posture as the main takeaway from this text. Just sort of cosmically rest, and God will do the work. But I think that's pressing this analogy a little further than it was intended. 
I think Jesus means to communicate two things by his command to abide in him. First, in one sense, the most active, the most important part really is not us. This is what the let go and let God idea gets, gets partly right. The life the branches need comes from the vine. It's not in themselves. They receive it. And what happens? Fruit results in their life. In that sense, the branch really is passive, as a passive recipient of the life and the power of Jesus. But the second thing Jesus means to communicate here is that we have something active to do. If we have just a passive role, it would make no sense for Jesus to command us over and over again, abide in me, abide in me, abide. So what is it then that we do? I like how one commentator put it. Abide in him by continual direction of thought, love, desire to him. By continual and reiterated submission of the will to him as commanding and appointing. By the honest reference him of daily life and all petty duties which otherwise distract us and draw us away from him. Then dwelling in him we shall share in his life and shall bring forth fruit to his praise. In other words, the command to abide in Christ is an all-encompassing sort of effort to turn from ourselves, to focus on Christ, to focus on the gospel of Jesus. Recognizing that we're in him, we turn our hearts to him, we turn our minds to him, turn our will to him, we turn our attention to him. It's an active living out, an active laying hold of what's passively already true for us. It's our taking hold of an already accomplished reality that we are attached to the vine and we just need to abide. We also see in this passage that the fruit comes as a result of our being connected to God's love in particular. Verse nine, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So we're not just connected to Christ, we're connected to the very love that is shared between the Father and the Son. As the Father has loved the Son, the Son has loved us. Now abide in that love. Why would we not? Why would we not want to abide in, rest in, savor that kind of love? A love that loves you regardless of what kind of sin is in your past. A love that loves you regardless of what kind of guilt you might have walked in feeling this morning. Abide in my love. What a joy it should be for us to obey that command. And Jesus says exactly that. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Jesus, abiding in this source of true love, true joy, true power, yields the fruit of our obedience and it leads to our joy. Do you want fullness of joy? I do. (laughs) Is there anyone in here that does not want to be joyful? Notice, though, that the flip side is a warning. 
verse 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no life apart from Christ. There can be no good fruit apart from Christ. A branch that's not connected to the life-giving power of Jesus is good for nothing here but burning. Now, this is not saying that believers can lose their salvation. That's not what he's teaching. It's a warning for those who think, you know, I'm okay because I'm somehow connected to the church. I'm somehow connected to Jesus. You can say you're a Christian all day long, but the test is whether you're actually connected to the vine. A dry, withered branch who's taken away and tossed in the fire here is the professing believer who in reality is not attached to Christ by faith and whose life bears no resemblance to Christ or his teachings. Why? Because they don't have a connection to him in the first place. There's no fruit of obedience to him. So what does all this mean practically for us? It's a rich text. There are a lot of things that we can take away from this, but I want to focus on one question. Are you connected to the vine? Are you connected to Jesus? There are two aspects of that. First, have you been connected to Jesus? Have you been connected to the vine by faith? Is that true of you? If it's not, I pray that Jesus would grip your heart and make that true this morning even. That you place your faith in him, your hope in him, your trust in him alone. Jesus says, come, receive the life that only comes through me. And second, if that is already true of you, are you abiding in the vine? Are you abiding in Christ and his power? Or are you somehow trying to live out this Christian life in your own strength? Jesus' command to us is clear. Abide in me. Abide in my love. Recognize that we've been made one with Christ. And we now share in his life-giving power. We now share in the very love of God the Father and the God the Son. That's infinite power. Unimaginable power. Infinite love. If we're to bear spiritual fruit, we must trust in Jesus. We must trust in what he has already accomplished for us as being the true vine that we needed and what he promises to accomplish to us, in us through our connection to him. That's our good news statement for this morning. The good news, you are not the vineyard. You're not the vineyard that he comes to and says, where's my fruit? You can't be. Jesus is the vine. If you're connected to him by faith, you're the branch that just receives the life-giving power of the vine. And when you abide in the vine, you bear the fruit of obedience, which leads not just to joy, but fullness of joy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that that we don't have the power in ourselves, but that we can be connected, that we have been connected to your immense power. Think that you are the true vine, that you accomplished for us what we never could accomplish on the cross by dying for our sins and taking on 
the just penalty. And that by, by simple faith in you that we can receive all of your goodness. I pray that you would help us abide. Help us to recognize that, that we need you. <laughs> that there's no strength in us. There's no power in us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do everything. Because there's no limit on your power. There's no limit on your love. So we thank you. We, we pray that you would help us to, to lay hold of that, that reality, to treasure it, to, uh, to love you more as a result, and to walk out of here um, just joyfully seeking to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.